Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 13. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'd like to collect those, and we'll be praying for you this week. Let's uh, focus our attention and our time together in God's Word at this wonderful thought, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We live in a world of constant change. I was reminded of that when I read recently about Parker Brothers, who were the creators of the, the board game Monopoly. And they engaged in a remake of this iconic game that was birthed really in the Great Depression. And so you had the game pieces of the thimble and the iron and the, uh, the car and the boot um, and the dog. And so the company thought, well, we need to kind of bring it into the 21st century. And so they have entertained uh, game pieces like the cell phone and the computer and the jet and so forth. Only time will, ret- uh, will tell uh, how these original pieces will fare. But it's just a reminder of how things are changed out. And some things need to be changed. Some of us have clothing in our closets that should never, ever be worn again. Um, some of us have hairdos from years gone by, which we would never sport um, in today's world. Some things need to be retired. Uh, they need to be discontinued, mercifully so. But other things, like the Word of God, the truths of Scripture, the claims of Jesus Christ, the core of the gospel, this is a timeless message. And one of the things that we emphasize as a church is that we're a multi-generational church. Our oldest member is 104. Um, The Richardsons are the longest living married couple in Louisiana, 80 years. And we have children all over the place here. So one generation is to declare God's praise to the next generation, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we look at a new year, I cannot think of a greater declaration than that, that you and I would renew our focus, our love, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, because He's eternal. I mean, we're not. When the book of Hebrews was written, the recipients of this letter were experiencing really, they were experiencing major uncertainty. They had left the fixed form of Judaism and have, had entered into the, this new covenant inaugurated by Jesus Christ. And life was hard. And um, many were thinking, you know, I want to go back to what I know. I want to go back to what's safe. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. There's there's no life in that. And as hard as it may be that you would remain strong in the promises that are found in Christ Jesus. In his closing exhortation, which I read for you a moment ago, he stresses a number of commands, which I think uh, provides an important consideration for us. That the Christian life is to be marked by obedience and obeying the things that God has commanded us to do. And he mentions hospitality in in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality. And one thing that persecution can bring, it can fray the bonds of fellowship. And so we need to be hospitable to one another. And this is a reference back to Genesis 18 where Abraham entertained these heavenly visitors on the eve of Isaac's birth. Remember those who are in prison. They aren't there for crimes. They're there for their faith. Remember them. Visit them. Honor marriage. 
Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. A call to sexual purity. There's a biblical ethic that needs to be proclaimed and lived out in these days. He, he, he says, keep your life free from the love of money, whether you have a lot of it or you have a little of it. This sin of covetousness and greed can grip our hearts. Be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. That is an elusive thing, isn't it? Contentment. This, how easily we could want and desire things that, um, that are you know, beyond our means or beyond what God wants for us to have, to learn to be content with what we have and to count our blessings and name them one by one. He goes on to say, God will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That goes all the way back to Joshua 1, where God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. And that is certainly true of the Lord Jesus Christ, living, resurrected Christ, our great high priest who's in heaven. He watches over us. So when we look at verse 8, it's within that context. Um, uh, Before I read that again, verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their faith and outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So there is a place in the Christian life for godly example. And we should all strive to live an example of, of, of a life surrendered to Christ that that would be on display in this body. And he says, remember your leaders. I think that's also a strong uh, appeal for missionary biography, reading great men and women who have served the Lord in years past. I think one of the, uh, the, the easy besetting sins of, of every generation is this, that you think you're the smartest and the most ablest generation who's ever lived. That is a a terribly arrogant thought because the faith that is ours in Jesus Christ has been delivered. The faith once for all delivered to the saints we're to contend for. It's been passed on to us and everyone in this room and all who are affiliated with us need to make a decision. Is this gospel, is this message of Jesus Christ some antiquated message for generations in the past? Or is he really the Lord of glory and I need to live for him? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll be be the same a thousand years from now. He will still be the Lord. And he will be the one where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that he's Lord. Are you among that number? I pray so. He's the same yesterday because yesterday's when Jesus Christ showed himself in history. Born in Bethlehem's manger, grew up in Nazareth, entered into public ministry for three and a half years. His teaching codified for us in the Gospels. His death on the cross and resurrection. The lion's share almost of the Gospel message focused on his death. Why? Because he's the once for all payment for our sins. This happened before we were born. God entered into the history through Jesus Christ and would be the once for all payment for our sins. He's the same today. That means what he accomplished in the past 
what happened when the Holy Spirit came down and empowered, empowered the church to go into the ends of the earth to obey his commission is happening even now. That the Spirit of God is moving through this world, calling men and women to himself. This is an age of grace. God's grace can be received in your life this day through the gospel. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that wonderful? It's crucial that Jesus Christ be the same today as he was yesterday because today is where we have fellowship with him and relate to him as our Lord and Savior. This very book of Hebrews says that we, he's our great high priest who is in heaven forever living to make intercession for us. We encounter him primarily on the pages of the Bible which proclaim his saving work yesterday, but we see his saving work today. How else can we explain transformed lives? How else can we explain what he's done in our lives? Where we were once lost, but now we're found. We were once blind, but now we see. I always go back when I think of transformation to the Gerizim demoniac, who was a frightening man. And the gospel writers say he was clothed in his right mind after meeting Jesus Christ. History is filled with those who have been transformed by his grace. Have you? Have you tasted to see that the Lord is good? He's the same tomorrow. It's crucial that Jesus Christ be the same tomorrow as he was yesterday and today because all our hope for everlasting joy hangs ultimately on what he accomplished and what he promised. And I can't think of a, a more vain pursuit than to live life for ourselves. Vanity of vanities, if we're not centered on Jesus Christ, he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Life which is full of meaning and beauty and centered upon Christ, our precious Savior. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Joel Beakey spoke of the unchangeable Christ bringing great comfort to the believer Embracing yesterday through Christ by faith, yielding today to Christ with love, and facing tomorrow in Christ with hope. So, how would I like to break down this eighth verse? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, uh, in this way, his person's the same. His person is the same. I think. Maybe there might be a tendency when you read of Jesus in the Bible, you think of a historical figure who, who lived long ago and has made quite a splash on human history. But you need to know that he's alive. At the heart of the Christian gospel is our Savior rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back again. His person is the same. One man began the year with kind of a tongue-in-cheek resolution. He said he wanted to be more like Jesus Christ, and so he was going to hang out with sinners, upset religious people, be kind, loving, and merciful, take naps on boats, and tell stories that make people think. That's something to consider. The person who hears my words and builds their life upon them, Jesus said, will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. But the foolish man is not so. He builds on the sand, and when the storms come and the floods come, great is the fall. Jesus has stories that are clear and purposeful and unmistakable 
And when we think about him being the same in person, he couldn't change for the better. He was sinless. The field narrows greatly when you consider sinless people in this world. It, it narrows greatly to one. And the New Testament goes to such a detail to say, he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. That's why he's the only one qualified to be your all-sufficient Savior. He lived in this world, was tempted, and never yielded. And so his death was a perfect sacrifice. He could not change for the better. He was sinless. He couldn't, he couldn't change for the worse because he's perfection. David said in a moment of worship in Psalm 27, he said, One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to be, behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. The beauty of Jesus Christ, he could not change for the worse, for he's perfect. Wayne Grudem in his classic systematic theology speaks of this doctrine, this unchangeableness of God in his being and his perfections, his purposes and promises, that God does, not, God does act and feel emotions and he acts and feels differently in response to different things. But this attribute is, is called his immutability. We don't have a Savior who's molded like wax. We have a God who is consistent. And this should bring comfort to us. He's not going to change in a decade. His person is the same. And in fact, in this letter to Hebrews, it, it, it begins in chapter 1 with a quote of Psalm 102, which speaks of all the changes that we see around us. It says in Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundation of the world, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, you will endure. They will all wear out like a garment, like an old bathrobe. The creation as we see it will one day be no more. You change them like raiment they, and they pass away, but you're the same, the psalmist said. You're the same and your years have no end. That's why a proper understanding of salvation is your relationship with God. Why would you think you have salvation if you have no desire to worship him? No desire to know him in a deeper more intimate fellowship. When that's what you will do for all of eternity, he doesn't change. God existed before the heavens and the earth. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Prior to that, what do you have? You have God, who's always existed. In the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, he existed. He's the same. His person is the same. Notice, secondly, his power is the same. When we read of the power of Jesus Christ, that's not confined to the Gospels. That just merely testifies that he was who he said he was. John said, I could write many more things about the miracles of Jesus, and perhaps they could fill all the books of the world. But his power isn't relegated to sometime in the past. His power is on display now. If we would have eyes to see it, when we look at the Gospels, one of my favorite chapters in the Gospels is Matthew 9. And in Matthew 9, I'm led to believe this is one day in the life of Jesus. 
And there's kind of a summary statement in, in Matthew 9. It says that Jesus went into all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So what did Jesus do in his ministry? He taught, he proclaimed, he healed. That's kind of a summary statement of of Matthew 9. And then if you were to track all that Jesus was involved in in Matthew 9, he healed the paralytic, verses 2 through 7. He's sitting with sinners and eating with them and speaking of the, the truths of God to them. He uh, is approached by a synagogue leader whose uh, daughter is sick and on the verge of dying. And while he's making his way through the crowd, the woman touches the hem of his garment and he pauses as the crowd is around him. And he said, who touched me? What do you mean who touched you? There's a crowd of people around you. And it led to this woman who had been really outcast because of her medical condition. I think I've mentioned to you before, one of the memorable studies in my doctoral work was, to, was a paper I did on gynecology in the first century based upon this encounter. It's horrible. She, she, had, she was ceremonially unclean. She had exhausted her savings, Luke's t- Luke tells us in his account. Her only hope was that somehow the man that was healing everybody else could impact her life. And so, hoping against hope, she touched the hem of his garment and was healed. That's not relegated to the first century. God's power is on display today if we would have eyes to see and would believe him. That's not a call for a name it and claim it theology. That is a call for a robust faith and a God whose power is on display in this world. Well, the synagogue leader's daughter died and they don't bother the master anymore. So Jesus goes and he calls her forth. Two blind men in Matthew 9 came to him and were healed. A demon-possessed man, in verse 32 of that chapter, was delivered. Matthew gives a snapshot of Jesus' ministry, and his power is on display. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In this snapshot of ministry, we, we get a heart, in, we see into the heart of our Savior. He, he's a compassionate Savior. His power to transform lives and hope to sinners like us. His power is the same. His arm is not too, Isaiah gives this graphic picture in Isaiah 59. His arm is not too short to save. We look to the future with hope because our king of kings will reign. History, friends listen to this, history, time is linear. It's not cyclical. The biblical view of time is that it's linear. So what? You may say, so what? No, that, what that means is that it, it has purpose. There is an end point. The New Testament points us to that end, and that is that we give an account of our life before God. There's a judgment that's coming. 
What hope do we have as that judgment comes forth? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We look to the future with hope. We think it's going to become so frustrating. I can't remember more frustration than, than, than uh, what has been expressed in the last two years with government, with divisions, with tensions. What do we do when we become frustrated with the condition of this world? James Hamilton helps me with that question. Uh, Jim Hamilton gives help in understanding what it means for the Lord God, the Almighty, to reign without rival, because that's where we're going. That's the linear end to history and time as we know it. We all end up in the presence of God for those who have trusted in Him. But James Hamilton writes, what this means, this means the end of incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. No more will God's world be troubled by those who cannot rule it. No more will God's world be troubled by those who rebel against his authority, reject his claim on them, refuse to be guided by his wisdom, and trouble those who honor the world's rightful Lord. When God begins to reign, the world will finally be ruled as it should be. Hallelujah. That day's coming. His person is the same. His power is the same. Let me close with this. His promises are the same. You'll never come to a promise of God found in, under the new covenant established with Jesus Christ where God would ever say, I don't mean that. I don't really mean that. You can't really, you really can't believe that. Just think with me some of the promises that come from the mouth of Jesus. He said in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. That's a promise. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it, weren't so, I, I, if it were not so, I, w- I would tell you. But I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That's a promise. Whoever, whoever asks anything in my name, I will hear them. My Father will hear them and will answer them. On and on and on it goes. The promises of God in Jesus Christ. We need his promises. Sometimes we can become weary in our sojourn, can't we? In times of affliction, suffering, his promises sustain us. No matter what affliction, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Notice with me how the book of Hebrews ends. You're in chapter 13. Just Maybe turn the page and look at verse 21, 20 and 21. This is how Hebrews ends. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our great shepherd. By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you for everything good that you may do his will. What a charge. He's a shepherd of the sheep. He comes to us when we get stuck and lost and wayward. 
There's no reason for us to despair when we have such a faithful shepherd who's, who's promised to bring us to himself. Puritan John Trapp once said, He that rides to be crowned need not fear a few rainy days. He gives nothing you're not able to bear. The Christ of the word is still with you. The greatest comfort you can know is that he will never leave you or forsake you. He designs every affliction with a purpose that he has worked all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that his afflictions are important because properly received, they should drive us to him. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It was not uncommon for the shepherd to break the leg of the wayward sheep in order to learn obedience. How self-centered we would be without the chastening of the Lord. William Bridge, another Puritan, said that the sins of God's people are like birds' nests. As long as leaves are on the trees, you cannot see them. But in the winter of afflictions and the leaves are off, you see them plainly. In times of prosperity, when our trees are full of leaves, we don't see those little nests of sin that are building up in our hearts, accumulating in our lives. When God strips our our trees bare and he afflicts us, exposes to us in the crevices of our soul, we run to Jesus, which is where he wants us to go. One young pastor was told, or one young man told his pastor, my parents always let me do what I wanted to do. They told me I could come home anytime I wanted. It was the worst thing for me. They never watched over me. They thought they were loving me by giving me everything I wanted, but they weren't loving me. So it is with God watching over us. God has ways of afflicting us, keeping us needy, driving us to himself. We need to thank him that he watches over us. Aren't you glad he doesn't let you do all that you want to do sometimes? Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We learn more under the rod that corrects us than the staff that comforts us. God is refining us. He's conforming us into the image of his son to reflect him. So, all right, here we are on the front end of a new year. Time is a precious commodity, isn't it? If it's linear, and it is, it's pointing to a specific end, the judgment of God. We need to redeem the time. Sometimes we'll hear expressions like, well, we just need to kill some time. No, that's not a biblical concept. <laughs> the biblical concept is we need to redeem our time. Peter Drucker, a noted management consultant, said, time is the scarcest resource, and unless it is managed, nothing else can be managed. And so with this new year, we need to redeem the time. There was a wise man who once said, boast not about tomorrow. Because you don't know what a day will bring forth. What about your life? Have there been things that you've 
planned to say, planned to do, committed to do? Has there been some praise that you've wanted to give? Has there been some kindness that you've been thinking about doing that you've put off? You're just too busy? We have no tomorrow. There is no yesterday. We only have today. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Are you like the man who was trying to do many wonderful things tomorrow? So many lives that he, he was going to touch tomorrow? So many things that were, he was going to say and do tomorrow? But you didn't have time today. But surely tomorrow you get around to it. Don't boast about tomorrow. Jonathan Edwards gave a series of resolutions, life commitments that he was uh, committed to follow through upon. And one of them was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can possibly redeem the moments of the day. The logical conclusion for us today is since Christ never changes in his person, in his power, in his promises that we would surrender our lives to him. We would commit ourselves to him to live with purpose. We exist as a church to make disciples of all nations, beginning with us, that we would live the Christian life with purpose. There was a, a, a military figure in, in U.S. history that really made a mark on the U.S. Navy. Admiral Hyman Rickover served as a national leader for over 50 years with the Navy. In fact, by a special act of Congress, uh, he was permitted to serve in active duty until his 82nd year. A long-time associate recounted the last conversation he had with Admiral Rickover, who was then 86 and near death's door. He acted as if he had been saving up the question how are you supposed to know what God wants you to do with your life? Maybe I blew it, Rick Over said. Maybe I should have been a cello player. What does life all add up to? I'm so glad we have an answer to that question. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You follow him and you'll never be lost. You follow him, and you'll never be on the wrong side of history, because history ends at his feet. One of the great mo moments we have in worship is to remember what he's done for us, to renew our love for him, to surrender to him. And we do that this morning um, with the Lord's Supper, and Jared's going to come and guide us as we Reflect upon his death and proclaim it until he comes. Jared, would you come and lead us?